Thank you for downloading this podcast from the Pardes Institute of Jewish Studies. For more original Torah content, visit elmad.pardes.org. What has been the effect of coercion, asks Thomas Jefferson, to make one half of the world fools and the other half hypocrites to support roguery and error all over the earth? Now, I'm not looking to force you to do anything except to tune in, because I'm Rob Mike Foyer, and this is The Jewish Story. Interlude, Religion and State In the summer of 1947, the United Nations Special Committee on Palestine, that's UNSCOP, those of you who don't know, started a fact-finding tour through the Palestine Mandate. Now, we're going to tell the whole story of the UN, UNSCOP, the mandate. Don't be nervous if you don't know it. But for our purposes, what you need to know is that on the table was nothing less than international recognition of a state for the Jewish people within the land of Israel. But one of the preconditions the UN had given for the establishment of this Jewish state was freedom of speech to all of its citizens. That might sound obvious to you if you happen to be a liberal Westerner out there, but is not a given for the world as a whole, certainly not in 1947. And so David Ben-Gurion, then head of the Jewish Agency Executive, soon to be the first prime minister, sent a letter to the ultra-Orthodox party at Gudat Yisrael in order to form a united policy to present to the committee. And that letter detailed four principles that serve as the basis to this very day to what is known as the status quo agreement an informal but very powerful understanding that rules the relationship of the state to religion, sometimes with an iron fist, as we will see. In brief, the four points are Shabbat, the Jewish day of rest, will rule in the state of Israel, not necessarily in all of its manifestations, but we don't rest on Sunday here. We work. Be warned, by the way, if you're thinking of making Aliyah. Number two, Kashrut, the dietary laws of Judaism, that the kitchens in the Jewish state's official institutions will abide by those laws. Number three, and perhaps most significantly for our conversation today, family law. That a single judicial system would be preserved for the purpose of marriage and divorce, conducted by rabbinical courts for Jews, and the relevant religious authorities for people of other faiths. If you don't know, there is no such thing as civil marriage in the state of Israel. And last, but not least, close to my heart, education. That full autonomy within certain curricular requirements would be granted to different Jewish denominations. Now, In the light of our story, I want you to think about the fact that the relationship between religion and state is a testing ground of sovereign power. And if you've been listening for a while, you'll know that for the Jews, that relationship poses particular challenges. And sometimes, in my experience, questions of such magnitude should not be considered alone. And so I have with me today Rav Aaron Leibowitz, community rabbi in the Nachlod neighborhood of Jerusalem, founder of Hashkacha Pratit, the organization which single-handedly broke the monopoly of the Rabbanut over Kashrut in Israel, and is now moving that organization on to the challenge of weddings. Oh, and I should add, just for full disclosure's sake, he is my Rebbe. We worked together for many years at Sul Miyakov. Many of you have heard of it. Perhaps some of you have been there. And so I have with me here today, Rav Aron. Shalom, Rav Aron. It's been a long time since we sat. It has. It's so good to be here with you again, Rav Mike. Sometimes I listen to our voices together when I get nostalgic back there on Rabbis <laughs> Out of the Box. How are you doing? What's happening? I'm good. I'm good. Life is uh, life is very interesting. Well, I read about you in the papers. It's not like I don't know what's going on. Um, well, there's a lot that's in the papers and there's a lot that's behind the scenes. And, well, I'm um, curious about both. Tell our listeners a little bit um, about yourself, what you do, how you came to do that, social activism, community leader, rabbi. 
Well, I mean, you know, without giving my whole biography, I could speak, I could speak about how, how parts of this were born in my childhood in, in Berkeley, California. But it wasn't really until my, uh, my 40s that the Berkeley came out. And that's, that's, that's more relevant. <laughs> they say, by the way, you have to be careful because they always comes out. The Californian people always comes out. Yeah. So, the, uh, you know, it was really in the summer of 2011 where conversations which I'd been having for all of my young adult life with, with, uh, with, secular, with secular Israelis. Um, and, um, you know, my, my experiences in high school with, with friends who were, who, who were Orthodox and became secular and, and being privy and part of the conversations w- which led to that. Um, and, then, and then, you know, really connecting to a, young, to, to, to a group of young Jerusalemite activists who were characterized by, by diversity of thought and diversity of lifestyle. Um, and a really, really very compelling community which had formed itself um, to contain different, different halachic identities within, with, within, within one community and, and a community which, which viewed itself as a change agent for the city and for the country. And, uh, you know, and that, uh, in the context of that, of that group who are called Yerushalmim and founded by, um, by a now member of Knesset and Jerusalem mayoral candidate, Rachel Azaria. Yeah, she's in that crowded race right now, huh? Yes. Give yes. it us odds. Can we give us odds real quick? Give give odds for uh, for, for Rachel, for, for Rachel but boy, it's uh, you know the, the the map is still changing almost daily, um, and um, I wouldn't be supporting her if I didn't think she had a chance. There you go. And plus, and the Chaim are defacing her signs, so that's raising her odds. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> Sorry, we'll go back to the main it's, topic. Uh, it's uh, to, to, to the point that, that she's being accused of orchestrating it. Oh, really? I hadn't heard that. Oh, I love it. Oh, you gotta love today's media. Yeah, and, and and it also that's that's very relevant to our conversation. You know, the Absolutely. the the, 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 the you know one of one of her, her her hallmark issues was was the inclusion of women in the public space. Or we should uh, say rather the fear of their exclusion, which was was going on. That's right, battling battling the, the trend of exclusion. Uh, we just had a conversation in in our in our in our community yesterday about the fact that at the Bnei Akiva camp. Uh, apparently, at the canteen, they created separate lines for the boys and the girls this year. Really? Yes. I have to ask my daughter about that. But it's Sayerot. Where? I'm not. I, oh, we'll be talking about I, it later. I, I, Sorry, our listeners I, don't need to. My, kid, my kids are in Ariel, so you know, oh. it's, I, I, I'm on, I'm on the right hand. I was going to say, wow, you, you, that's a given for you. So the, um, but but that conversation is is a huge conversation, and um, and it's in the context of that particular group that I discovered I discovered that um, the monopoly of the chief rabbinate on kosher food. Was 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 actually um, detrimental to everybody's interests. In other words, on the one hand, it was it was it was uh, it was corrupt and therefore hurting the business owners. It was unreliable and therefore it was hurt, hurting the, the kosher observant community, and um, and it was representative and symbolic of a monopoly of the rabbinut on, on on religious services and therefore an issue for the secular community. So we discovered that here was an issue, which was tailor made for us because because all all parties could get around it, or at least the moderate voices in all parties could join together you know if you have an extreme left-wing position they want nothing to do with kosher food right and if you have an extreme right-wing position then they're not eating the rabbanut food anyway and for them it's just a political goal to maintain control but being able to bring together all the moderate voices of people who are traditional or 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 simply looking for coexistence and the common good and people who feel that corruption in business (laughs) that's right people feel like corruption should be battled not only not only the the, the, you know oppositional ideologies but let's battle corruption let's talk about bad behavior that's right that's right right. so so you know we 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 we, we kind of um started off on a grassroots level with only two or three restaurants and within five years it was um it, it was um uh, over forty restaurants in five cities in Israel. It's been a meteoric rise, and um, and you know it was uh, 
it was really it was really exciting. It was bittersweet in, on on um, on the eve of this last Pesach Passover that we um, that we made the first exit in in, in religion and state in Israel, <laughs> and we passed we passed our entire um, system over to Tzohar, which is the largest modern Orthodox rabbinic organization in Israel. Very strong brand, national presence, um, you know, in, in in all regions of the country. And um, they took over the system, our system and are taking it to the next level. I say bittersweet. My daughter said, you know, Abba, it's like marrying off a child. Uh-huh. <laughs> sure, you hope she thrives. That's right. right? That's right. And uh, maybe we'll come back to it. I would note, if, because probably our listeners aren't aware, so our stance has historically been making change from within. Whereas the posture that you chose or were called to, however you want to think of it, with Hashkacha Prati was specifically making change from without. I think the model is, first of all, is first of all creating competition. Mm-hmm. Um, creating alternatives, building a, a mass civilian movement around around the alternatives, and then what happens is is um, you know when you when you look at the political arena, or even when you look at an organization like Sohar, um, they can't uh, politicians and and um, and other organizations can't afford to ignore the public. In other words, once the mm-hmm. demand is there and it's and it's and and, and, and it's needed. They run the risk of becoming irrelevant or less than relevant if they continue to ignore that call. It's something that our detractors should remember, that we are a thriving democracy. And with all the warts and bumps, it means that in the end of the day, if you want change badly enough and you're able to organize, you can make it happen. Yeah, most definitely. I would say that if, um, if uh, somebody coming to visit Israel or somebody uh, you know, reading, who, who generally gets their impressions from the press, which are focused on the, the legislative arm or the judicial arm, and have a um, bit of the evil eye. They tend to see the bad. Well, <laughs> they tend to see the bad, as as does the press. That's what I'm saying. The, the press. That's but my what, point. That's right. But one of the most exciting things that's, that, that 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 are happening in Israel is the grassroots civil society, um, yes. you know, level, and um, and really, uh, again, the change that happens there, it nobody can afford to ignore it once it's actually taking place and happening. And the biggest proof is the kashrut, um, you know, tsohar. Um, saw saw an opportunity, realized that they were going to become less than relevant unless they took this opportunity, and they stepped up. They stepped up to the plate, and we believe. I mean, really, this, this is our theory of change, which we can speak about more later on. That the same thing will happen with weddings. So this is worth it for me to think about. Actually, in the long run of our story, I won't drag you all the way into it. But what I hear you saying, to some degree, is that sovereign power within the state resides within the people, as is the theory of democratic principle, right? Of the people, by the people, for the people. We grew up in America, or you did to a young age, right? And and yet. It's not a given within the history of the state of Israel that democratic principles drive our our country. Not even I'm not being cynical or or conspiracy oriented, but you know Ben Gurion and the Mapai, the the uh, political parties that built the state from the beginning, were socialist. I mean, it's noteworthy as much as we have all these battles in the Supreme Court, and we'll draw them into our conversation eventually. Um, that the Supreme Court loves to adjudicate between the Jewish and democratic nature of our country. And yet, if you look into the Declaration of Independence with all the guarantees it gives for equality of citizenship, the word democracy is not there. Yeah, well, I think that, that I mean, first of all, um, socialism and democracy are, are intention, but aren't necessary, but, 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 but aren't, aren't opposites. In mm-hmm. other words, you know, and, uh, you know, the, um, the, question of, um, the question of capitalism versus, versus socialism is, 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 is an important balance that, that, that Israel, I think, actually does an amazing job of, of, of holding. Um, and... Um, you and, and, get a lot of consumer goods, but still wait in lines. Yeah, Sorry. exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, you know, recently, recently, I just, I just went through a, uh, a whole slew of uh, of medical checks. You know, th- mm-hmm. thank God, everything's great, everything's oh, good. Sure. 
um, and just you know, the, you know, medicine in this country. You know, you watch what's going on in the United States, oh, and, yeah. and it's a wonder. Medicine in this country is a wonder. Yep. You know, and 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 you may have to wait in line, but you won't pay an arm and leg for it, and it will happen well. That's right. That's right. And I, I may have waited three weeks for a test, which which in, which which in in in, 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 in under like high end, you know, uh, private well medicine, funded right. private medicine would have happened within a day. And that was a frustration, right? And yet, when I thought about whether I could have I could have afforded it otherwise, um, you know, it was it was it was a clear win. And Jewish doctors, <laughs> well, you know, actually, the experience in hospitals in Israel is that is one of the strongest experiences of coexistence that there possibly are because the um, the equalizer of health and it brings really really brings out the simple humanity both in the medical teams yeah, and more, in the patients more so even than the army because there's a segment of our population too that don't participate there but in the That's hospital. Right. On some level, we're all human. That's right. Now, you know, in terms of being a democracy, I think Israel is most definitely a democracy. It's, it's, some might question whether it's a strong liberal democracy. In other words, what yeah. you know, what, what you know, what 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 are the um, what, what are the mitigating um, values? And I, and I feel like that really does come out in Supreme Court. Um, by the way, the Supreme Court is not always happy with um, with the um, with the fact that the, that 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 Israeli law gives the chief rabbinate of Israel. The uh, the authority to define what is Jewish, what is Judaism, and what is not. I think that's a gross understatement um, that they're not always happy. So so it <laughs> so it becomes very clear in, in 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 many of their rulings. And by the way, the Supreme Court is one of the weakest arenas for religion and state for people who are looking for more for more flexibility why, why in religion so? and state, because the because Israeli law makes it very clear that the chief rabbinate are are the arbiters of what is what is Jewish and what is not, what is halachic and what mm. is not. And so the the law ties the hands of the court. So the Supreme Court will only intervene in cases where it, where it, where it feels that 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 that, that um that core human rights are unconsciously being being compromised. In mm-hmm. other words, you know, I would say it's only in the extreme cases, which is why when it comes to religion and state, I would say that that the liberal the liberal side wins maybe like one maybe one out of five cases. And, wow. Um, so that's it, funny because it's not depending on what press you read, it it looks like you know there's a there's a crisis and that the court is an activist court. But what I hear you saying is it may be in other realms, but not in this. Well, I mean, f- from the perspective of those who are trying to hold on to the monopoly, so one out of five is know, a big loss. Each one of those, and remember that a, that a fundamentalist or, or, or black and white worldview, um, you know, every loss is is the end of the world. Yes, this is um, true. You know, there's very little room for compromise. So, so the. Um, so you know, a good example is the is is the two times the Supreme Court heard the case on Kishrut, heard our case on Kishrut, and 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 the court, the court really you know was 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 weighing the, um, you know what it viewed as the interest of the consumer of the kosher consumer to know mm-hmm. that their food is kosher, um, the the um, the mandated authority to say what's required for the consumer to be to 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 to, to, to be able to become was, was the chief rabbinate. Mm-hmm. Um, the 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 the, 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 the corrupt element or the irony was that the chief rabbit had a financial interest in right. maintaining that in maintaining that monopoly big business and um and and and, and it went against the financial interest of the business owner who the, the the business owner and and the public at large might have had had an interest in a competitive market well, for which, sure i mean any cost to a business owner is a cost to the consumer that's right that's right and um and yet the court the court ruled against us both times. In other because words, the law was clear. Because the because the law was cl- because because the, because there was a man- the, the chief rabbinate is a mandated authority to give an authoritative opinion over what is required for 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 food to be reliably kosher. So I mean, food is big business, and definitely we all love to eat, and and it's a an important right of the consumer to have competition. But you know, the developments that I want to move to now, I think, touch a little closer to home. Uh, several weeks ago. 
maybe three weeks at this point. Uh, Rabbi Dov Hayun, uh, a representative of the conservative movement here, or what's called the Tunua Masorati in Israel, was woken up from his home at five in the morning by the Israeli police, arrested, or he was not charged, he was taken into, into custody by the police, and interrogated about the alleged fact that he was performing weddings outside of the auspices of the Rabbanut. Because, of course, in addition to the monopoly on kashrut that the Rabbanut holds, legally mandated, as you point out, there's also a legally mandated monopoly on weddings. And that may sound absolutely bizarre to some of our listeners who can't imagine a democracy in which a rabbi, a clergyman of any faith, would be arrested by the civil authorities and interrogated did she give him the ring or did he give her the ring? We must know, Rabbi. You know, the, and yet, I do, I'm not privy to the details of the conversation. I don't know if they actually got that far. But this uh, shook a good part of not just the liberal world. I think that in the community in which I live in, there were a lot of questions that were raised about where have we gone in the relationship between um, religious authority and state power. And uh, I use this as a segue because you've moved on from Kashrut. I mean, like you said, you, you made the exit. You married off the child, thank God, successfully, and she should be healthy and well. Um, and now, what lies ahead? So, you know, we've been chafing at the bit to be to to, to go into weddings for uh, for quite a while. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and the reason we've we, we had been holding back is because we know that the issues that are on the table, the halakhic issues and the social issues that are on the table in weddings are much heavier. The stakes are higher. Oh, fair. Uh, and um, and we were we were very concerned. That if we did something which was more radical, we, we, we would alienate some of the mainstream people who had just, who had chosen to support our 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 move in kashrut. Mm -hmm. um, so when we were able um, a few months ago to pass on the kashrut, we had already we had already been we, over the course of a year been building a, a model a, a model for for weddings outside the rabbanut. And the um, you know, I want to I want to make clear that our model is for performing wedding ceremonies. Um, the, the project will, uh, the project is called Chupot. It's, it's, uh, the, the official name is Chupot from the people who brought you Ashka Chapratit. Uh -huh. um, Chupot, for our listeners who don't know, the Chupot is the wedding canopy in, in Hebrew. Right. And it, and it relates to, to, um, to, uh, to legislation. <coughs> and it relates to legislation which, which goes back, you know, really to Ottoman law. Which which um, defines you know what the, what the, what the what the law in Israel does is it defines that somebody who gets married must register, and must get married with an official registrar, um, but what the amendment which 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 was amended into law uh, about four years ago, is is an amendment which, which defines the um, the uh, which defines a requirement for a couple and the rabbi who performed the wedding to register with the chief rabbinate, and if they do not register with the chief rabbinate, it's punishable by two years in prison. For the couple as well as the For rabbi? For the couple as well as the rabbi. Well, that would be quite a honeymoon, huh? So, so now, the, now the, um, the interesting fact is that there's a very clear consensus that the law is poorly written and therefore hardly um, enforceable. enforceable. And, you know, not to mention the fact that that you know, most prominent legal opinions are that the Supreme Court would overturn any attempt to throw someone in. In other words, when I said before that there are cases, you know, when, when something is unconsciousable, mm -hmm. and I do believe that the Supreme Court would likely view that as unconsciousable, as to, you know, to, to throw a rabbi and a couple in prison for getting married in accordance with their, with their, with their faith and conscience. Um, Sounds problematic. So the, um, 
So nobody really believes that this will ever take place. And nonetheless, it's been very effective in creating a deterrent. Oh, yes. From, I've uh, seen it amongst my peers. That's right. So, so people, are, people, people are scared. Um, I feel like part of our role, and this is, this is part of what we did in Kashrut also, is to, um, is to um, you know, disempower the boogeyman. <laughs> it's to be the Nachshon. My, the, this idea that if you jump into the water first, that things will part. Things are going right. to happen. And, 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 and also a lot of, you know, so much of where society is stuck today is fear-based. And so many of our fears come from, from, from our imagination and are, and are, and are not there. Um, although, it, although it has to be said that, that when, when you're we're talking about weddings, there are reasonable fears. Yeah, tell me a little bit about those fears. Because um, I know, in particular, there's a, one gentleman in my neighborhood, a very strong advocate, a member of the Ramanut, um, who I've had many park... Shabbat conversations with about the work that you do because he knows that we're associated um, as well as I haven't mentioned to him I didn't mention before you guys went public the uh, the wedding project but I knew it was on the horizon um, and he's definitely he's afraid he's afraid of many things I'm curious how you see it what is there to be afraid of legitimate or not um, uh, uh, first of all the fears that people that, that people raise regarding this particular project are legitimate okay and um one of them is regarding illegitimacy of children, right? <laughs> um, and the uh, you know if um, if we're talking about a couple that get married and they get married according to halacha, then certainly anyone who prescribes to, uh, to halacha will be concerned um, for for the eventuality that a certain that, that a certain percentage and a not small percentage In of our those world, weddings sure. will eventually end. And and when the couple chooses to separate, will they will they pursue a get? Will they responsibly pursue? A halachic divorce, because the, the 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 concern if they do not pursue a, pursue a divorce, is that is that any subsequent children that the woman might have with other men would be mamzerim, would be would be what's often translated as bastard, but but really it in, doesn't inaccuracy in English and Hebrew there. That's yeah. right. In terms of how you understand it, it's not children born out of wedlock; it's Ill- illegitimate children born to a married woman. Right. So. And and the severity of that status is such that they that they are unmarriageable and and all of their descendants are unmarriageable. It's an inherited you know, status, except in to exclusive cases. For instance, a male and a, and a woman mamzer may marry one another, right. but their children will also be mamzerim. It's 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 one of it's one of the greatest rabbinic concerns, um, and uh, and also one of the one of the more creative areas of halacha in terms of finding ways. To remove that status from people who otherwise might have had it. To our liberal Jewish listeners, it's important that the notion of tikkun olam, of fixing the world, um, in the rabbinic mind is often associated with avoiding situations of mamzerut. Yes. That they were willing to take, as you say, creative and often um, ridiculously bold action in order to avoid an unfixable situation. Correct, correct. So that, 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 that definitely is one of the concerns because, and why would that be a concern? Because somebody who gets married with the chief rabbit in Israel and therefore is registered as married um, cannot, cannot um, uh, remarry. Cannot remarry and also, and also cannot divorce without, without going through that, that stop of the, of, of, of the rabbinic court. In other right, words, just as there is no civil marriage, there is no civil divorce. That's, in the state right, of Israel. that's right. So the state of Israel will not recognize the divorce unless it's authorized by the, chief, by, by the, by the, by the baiting of the chief rabbinate of Israel, which means, um, which means that there is a, that, that there's a you know, relatively available sanction for right. couples and way to, and way to enforce uh, them getting divorced. Now, there's control. There's control. Now the problem is, and and I'd say this is this is a huge concern, um, is that the rabbinic courts are are um, are are uh, boy I'm looking for looking for a word. In, take uh, a minute. How do you say aflaya in um, 
they're they're they've, they've overstepped their bounds no no no, no. no they uh um I got it. Yeah. The problem is, is that the rabbinic courts discriminate against women. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So the rabbinic courts discriminate against women. Uh, you know, Orthodox halacha, um, you know, was, 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 was written and encoded in a different time of history. And, and, and certainly the Torah, um, you know, has, 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 is very clear that, that, there's, that there is no fault divorce. There is one, one-sided no fault divorce in Judaism. Sure, it was a rabbinic innovation that you needed a woman's consent for divorce. Correct. And so, so despite the fact that over the years there have been many corrective measures in the halacha to, to protect women and sure. to enforce women, whether, God bless it's, the rabbis. whether it's ketubah or whether it's, um, or whether it's the fact that a woman has to consent for divorce, um, and despite the fact that there is that today the, the the challenge of get refusal of refusing a divorce, um, there there are cases also where men are stuck because the woman refuses. I to have get a friend who suffered in that situation for a number of years. Right, and and that's a result of rabbinic decrees that were that were that were instated to 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 to, to you know to level to to le- to level the playing field and to equalize yet, power to, to equalize power. And yet, in the rabbinic court and in ultra orthodox communities, the, the the power is not equalized. It's still sure. very, it still very much works, in, you know, works works in the in the man's favor. I just want to map that for a second because I hear a couple of things. We have a question of power between the rabbinate and secular society, as embodied in the state, which the case the state has sort of bowed, so to speak, to the power of religion here in this particular family law. We have the power within religious community, which rabbi gets to say what, and then we have the power between men and women. Right, which all of these, you know, sort of the intersection, to borrow a term from our friends on the left, of so many dynamics of power lends itself to suffering. Yes, and extreme suffering. I mean, you know, people who follow the news are familiar with cases of women who have been imprisoned in a marriage and unable to marry um, for for over a decade as yes. a result of a, of, of of get refusal. Um, those are extreme cases. The more normal cases, I would say, perhaps even get refusal is a misnomer, because it might more it might more accurately be called get leverage. Sure. Um, usually, what happens is the man takes advantage of of the fact that the woman cannot remarry, and that's where there still is a huge lack of balance of power. In other words, even though you need the woman's consent for a, for for a divorce document as well as the man's. If a man remarries, despite the fact that he hasn't received a divorce document, it does not have ramifications for True. his children. It's still a legitimate marriage. That's right. So therefore, he has the upper hand. And, and because the rabbinic courts have not taken measures, to, to, from my perspective and from many Orthodox rabbis' perspectives, um, and from many Orthodox people and women's perspectives, have not taken uh, sufficient measures to empower women and protect women in that, in, in that environment, um, so, so it's not clear cut. In other words, one would say that registering with the rabbanut creates a safer situation regarding the possibility of couples who would separate without a divorce. The problem is it creates a, it creates a significantly less secure situation for women who want an equitable divorce process. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so and how is your initiative going to address that through marriage? So, I would say I mean, first of all, the uh, the um, a couple who are not registered with the chief rabbinate. Are not are not required to go to a to a, to an Orthodox rabbinic court. In other words, they can divorce anywhere they want. Mm-hmm. Um, the concern then remains, you know, will they perhaps not divorce? Will they perhaps choose not to divorce? So, so that really um, touches upon not only mamzerut. It touches upon get refusal. It touches upon the possibility of agunot. Um, and by the way, also touches upon the need if you're getting married outside the chief rabbinate to protect the couple against bigamy. 
In other words, mm -hmm. if somebody would be registered with the state, yes. it would be much more difficult for them to, to get married again if they were already married. So those are, those are really the issues that have to be addressed. Those are the fears, as Correct. we said. Now, one of the reasons that we're passionate about the work that we're doing is that we feel that we're not only addressing each of those, each of those issues, but that, the, but that the methods which we're using to address those issues are preferable and safer than the methods that are at the rabbinate's disposal. Within the halachic system? Within the halachic system and within the, and, and within the legal system. Within the civil legal system. Okay, so, so um, you know, I'll just give a quick outline of those measures. Um, all of the all of the things that we employ have to do with have to do with um, documents that the couple sign before they get married. Mm -hmm. I would say the first the first um, level is is the couple are, are required to present documentation, um, you know, of, of their of their governmental identification to um, to clarify that they're both single, and also to to be able to check into their Jewish status. And we right. can speak more at length about the Jewish status later on. That's sure. that, that's another. But whole, those are standards both within chapter. Jewish law and civil law. Anyway, correct. Um, then the couple are are, um, have, are are required to sign an agreement between our organization and the couple, and in that agreement, they they first of all declare that they are unmarried, um, in case there is a perhaps a, a unregistered marriage somewhere right, in the past. Sure. They declare and with with legal sanctions, it's a, it's a, it's a legally binding declaration, and they also declare and commit to us that they will get that they will uh, um, arrange for a get for a halachic divorce. Um, in, in the case in the eventuality they, in the eventuality that they, that they, that they separate um, in addition to that legal document which, which also has sanctions they sign another agreement between themselves okay and then this is what, what is very commonly known as a halachic prenup um, and today is required for instance by the RCA by the American Rabbinical Orthodox Rabbinical Association it's required it's recommended by Tsohar which performed today 40% of the weddings in Israel. Oh, wow. Um, so you're cutting into another Tsohar project here. Um, yes and no, because all the weddings that Tsohar performs are Rabbanut weddings. In other words, mean, uh, they're 40% within the system. That's right. And what Tsohar provide is a more positive um, in, uh, interaction, mm -hmm. um, a user, a user interface, user friendly, a UI. Right. Um, um, but ultimately, you're getting married with the chief rabbinate, and anyone who would not be eligible for marriage with the chief rabbinate can, cannot get married with Tsohar. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, for instance, I'll mention that one of the thing, interactions, first interactions we had, we had with Tsar was they were deciding whether they could allow couples to get married with caterers from our kashrut, uh -huh. because the rabbinut require the rabbinut require that your wedding be in a kosher wedding hall. Really, despite the fact that it's totally irrelevant to the wedding itself. Correct. Um, and despite the fact that it creates a, a total experience of strong arming on the part of on the part of uh, because there's the a direct financial relationship between the rabbinut and the kashrut system. And and when Sar contacted us, they said, you know, we hate this. We don't believe in it, but we have to. We have, but we have to hold that standard as well because our, we're required to follow all the standards of the rabbinut. Sure. Um, so someone who gets married with Sar is being registered with the rabbinut, but Sar also recommend a halachic prenup. Um, in short, what a halachic prenup does is it gives a couple a year to arrange. For for a um, for an agreeable um, divorce, um, and if at the end of that year there's still a couple refusing to grant, or one of the couples chooses to refuse to grant a get, they began to pay a monthly a monthly uh, financial penalty. Mm -hmm. um, so what this document does is it creates an incentive to reach an, amen, an, an amenable agreement within a given amount of time. Um, and this has already been these, these these kinds of documents have been employed already for for for, for close to two decades and are sure. proven proven effective. Yeah, they've been tested in the courts. I've you've seen it. It is working. tested in the courts, and and we and we know of no case of significant get leverage 
of couples who have signed these documents, and that's been proven in different countries. So, so, so that also addresses many of the concerns. And then, um, on top of all of those measures, which which really are um, are sufficient to prevent bigamy, to prevent um, somebody not getting a get, to prevent get refusal, to prevent agunot. In addition to all, I of would add to that intermarriage, which is a, a major fear of people out there in Israel today. Well, the, uh, so the, the issue of intermarriage is is, is 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 a whole other playing field, and that's something which which is which is worth discussing because it has a lot a lot to do with the chief rabbinate's um, desire to also control um, conversion. What do you mean? Well, you know, the, the the legislation at this point does not grant the chief rabbi a monopoly on, conver- on conversion. Right, that's a swirling issue right now. That's in, right. In the so you can so you can open a private conversion court and perform orthodox conversions in Israel. They won't be recognized by the state, as if some of my students have done. It's a terribly painful situation to have rabbis who are big rabbis. In fact, one who um, was the head of the rabbinic institution of conversion, who eventually opened his own conversion court. And to not be recognized by the revenue. That's a a discussion for another time, the who is a Jew thing. We should get back together on that one. We've had it once. Right, right. Although it's important to to note that that, um, to not be recognized by the state is primarily significant when you choose to get married. Right. And that's why our project... Um, uh, okay, oh, it relates we'll, we'll directly ultimate, to the relates question. Relates directly of to conversion. In other words, I hadn't thought about that. People who get mar- who get who convert in unrecognized courts will now have an address where they can get married. Where all of their concerns um, of of um, of get refusal of agunot of of mamzerut of bigamy, well, all of those concerns will be addressed in a preferable manner to whatever whatever the rabbinate would have had to offer. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, and then really the last the last and additional line of defense which we employ um, which is which is relatively radical halakhically mm-hmm. but has been approved by by, by halakhic giants who we've, who we've who we've consulted with is 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 couples who get married with us um, also get married conditionally mm-hmm. uh, we use what's called the tnai bekidushin um, and this condition is for you know we say it's a doomsday it's right. a doomsday device which which would allow for a unilateral divorce on the part of one one well, it's of, an annulment in that of, sense. of one party. It gives the authority to a religious court, not to the couple themselves. It gives the authority to a beitin to to, to annul the marriage retroactively. Right. Just clearing, it's not a divorce. Actually. In the case, in the eventuality that a couple have have not lived together as husband and wife for a year and a half, and one of the members of the couple petitioned the beitin, the beitin can then investigate, determine. That for all intents and purposes, they have ended their relationship, and retroactively annul the marriage in order to free the woman right. to, uh, to remarry and not and, and not cause mamzerut. That's ex- the one that's going to cause the bombshell with the other rabbis out there when it comes out. Well, I mean, first of all, our expectation is that is that there will be next to no cases which, where this will have to be employed. Um, you know, the, the so 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 I would say, so that's that's number one. Second of all, you know, we have we we, we we've had in the last um, two months. Two cases where a rabbinic court have annulled a marriage without such an agreement, without such a retroactive. One of agreement. whom we know who it was, and the other one we don't. <laughs> yes, yes. So, so, so those, so, so, so there certainly is precedent. And one of the interesting things is, is that both of those things, both of those uh, events took place with very little pushback. Mm-hmm. With very little, I mean, there was, so was public pushback. Yeah, I was surprised at how little. But there it was, was relatively moderate because I be, because. Um, the bottom line is is that there is a strong halachic basis, especially in a case where there is no other recourse yes. to employ these types of solutions. Yes. So, so despite the fact that they're not practiced, it's very hard to challenge them on strong halachic grounds other than it hasn't been done or, or historically it wasn't accepted. Um, 
but the, but but they're, 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 the, the opinions that that hold it that is isn't valid halachically are min- are, 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 are they are the, they are the minority. Right. So so you know ultimately we're talking about we're talking about a an alternative an alternative which is viable an alternative which is safe an alternative which is healthy an alternative which um, which we can very strongly allay any fears that that people have. We know it's going to take a few years for that to sink in, and sure. that's. And that's you know really our theory of change, is that this is you know these are things that that Sohar for instance should have and could have chosen to do, and um, and and you know we believe that one of the reasons that modern Orthodox rabbis in Israel the more prominent modern Orthodox rabbis because it must be said that I am not a a a a, uh, a halachic um, heavyweight, um, and. You know, although I do consult with halachic heavyweights, and I would not make would not make a step if I did not have somebody who I saw as a halachic heavyweight, tell me who I and others saw as a halachic heavyweight. You know, tell me that it's that it's that it's mutar. Um, but why are halachic heavyweights not stepping out on a limb? Because because there's a because they they have a lot to lose and very little to gain. Um, our role, and this goes to our theory of change. Is to create a lot to, to create a situation where they have a lot to lose by not going out on a limb, mm-hmm. a lot to lose in terms of the public identification, in terms of in terms of being perceived um, popularly as as the leadership that the that, that the pop, that, that, that the populists are hoping for. So what I hear you saying is that you're creating a community of interest um, around issues right now where power remains in the hands of an elite, in this case an rabbinic elite, but it can be a political elite as well because. As we've heard already, running a theme, one of the themes running through this conversation is the fact that um, religious power and civil power don't have a clear differentiation within our state. And by creating a community of interest, you allow um, authorities who, I mean, with all due respect, we all protect our, our power base and our interests, who can then essentially endorse change by stepping into a new leadership role in a, with a new community. I wouldn't even say it's a new community. You take an organization like Sohar, they perceive themselves as being the leadership of the modern Orthodox. Um, ah. or the, the religion, so you're giving a new voice the to religious the religious Zionist community. Already community. As the religious Zionist community begin to shift left, left um, our assessment is that Sohar will not be able to afford not to shift left with them. Mm-hmm. Um, by the way, one of the things that makes it possible for Sohar to make that shift left is that there's another organization challenging them from the left wing. Sure. So they no longer are, are perceived as being as as being the you know the. Um, the breakers of the status quo, which is, of course, a concept which you began with, right? Um, and, um, and it's worth exploring this idea of the status quo because, because actually, it's um, in, in many ways, it's a, it's a, um, it's a misleading, it's a misleading term. So, I actually want to end on that note. I mean, you've given us a, a tremendous lot to think about here in the particular battleground of um, social change as a concept, um, also in the the issues which exist in personal status as they intersect with sort of civil and religious power. Um, I want to ask you in your eyes, in a, like I said, the big picture, you can speak about the status quo, or you can speak about your own vision. First of all, should there be a separation of religion and state in our modern state? I mean, our, our American listeners, like myself, you know, um, grew up in a world in which that was a given, that, that religion and state never the two shall meet. Um, and they're often surprised... Even American religious Jews are sometimes surprised when they move to the state of Israel and they discover that there's no such division enshrined in law, and, and certainly not in practice. What's your vision? So first of all, one of the most uh, um, formative uh, quotes for me in this particular area is of the, the Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs, who, who, uh, who wrote that, that religion becomes 
weaker the more it tries to garner power. Mm. And the more religion is able to release power, the stronger it becomes. I mean, I think this is a very true and deep statement, and I think it goes to other issues in terms of in terms of human nature, in terms of in terms of license and agency and choice, and um, and what happens when someone tries to take that from us. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, and I and I would say, in a um, we spoke once in in, a, in in our other podcast, Rabbis Out of the Box, um, about about the um, about Hashem, about about God's decision to make to create a world which allowed for choice and license, and it. And it's, it seems to me almost heretical the fact that, that those of us who choose to serve him might might assume that it's our role to, take to remove license and choice from people. Mm. Um, so I think that there's and I and I think there's also an obsession of of of, of fundamentalist um, orthodox uh, positions, which 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 has a heretical level to it. You know, as if God is sitting in heaven, wringing his hands and saying, "Oh my God, what are we going to do? The reforming are coming. The reforming." <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, we've and, heard that cry before. You know, the, the sense, the obsession that if we don't maintain control, everything will will, will go wrong, and the and the willingness to to almost justify any ends for that for that means of maintaining absolute control, I believe rests on a very deep lack of belief in God, mm. um, and um, and and so therefore my vision is not a vision of of um, a separation of religion and state, but it is a vision of a separation of halacha and state. I, th- I, th- I, I think it's clear that Israel, that Israel's founding fathers intend, intended it to to be a Jewish state, and that and 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 in, in that respect, that's not only culture. In other words, there's certainly the cultural side of that, which is language, and which is and which is history, and which is you know vision calendar. And, and which, well, when you when you start to say calendar, I, th- I think you're not only speaking about culture; you're, you are speaking about religion. In sure. other words, to, you know, for the holidays, for the for the holidays which have religious roots, to be definitive public holidays, um, I think is, is 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 definitely part of my vision for Israel, and I think is and, and I think has a, a an overwhelmingly definitive um, um, common denominator in the, in, in the Israeli populace. I think everyone would agree on that, um, or almost everyone would agree on that. The um, the the question is not not you know which holidays are official state holidays but how are they celebrated mm-hmm. um, you know does one have the license and the agency and the freedom um, in other words are we willing to say that Passover Passover is a holiday of freedom and we will also grant the freedoms that we don't agree on you know for instance to eat chametz on Pesach right the, the, um, now. Now it's clear to me that this should be in everyone's interest because it's also clear to me that when I that, that the law which prohibited eating chametz on Pesach in Israel was the beginning of the trend of restaurants selling chametz and chametz on Pesach in Israel. In other words, had that law never been legislated, there probably would have been more people holding on to that tradition simply because of its cultural, uh, you know, um, uh, inertia and 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 and, and association. And yet, when you come and say we're not going to let you eat chametz on Israel, that's when I begin. That's when I begin to look for the stores that are going to be slipping it under the counter. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if, you know, you could, you could take us straight back to the legalized marijuana conversation. You know? Yes, <laughs> and, and I think it, it goes to the core, perhaps, of um, the question that I'm dealing with in the story, which is, what does it mean as a people in our land to wield power? And, and what I hear you say is that if we look back at our history, uh, it's not for naught that both God and Moshe called us a stiff-necked people. You know, on one hand, there's that cultural momentum. If you let us be in the groove that we've always been in, we're not going to jump it so quickly. But if you try to tell us what to do, so then the Jews are going to pop up and start saying, no, 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 I'm sorry, you can't tell me what to do, even if perhaps it's not what they would have done otherwise. 
Absolutely. And, and, and that, that goes to the psychology and nature of Jewish people, but it also goes to belief in God. In other words, if we really believe that there is light in Torah and that there is light in Halakha, then perhaps the reason people aren't being drawn to our lifestyle is because what we do is project darkness. Mm. And if instead what we would project is trust and, and, and faithfulness and honesty and openness um, and, um, and, uh, and trust in God, then, then I believe we would all find our way. And, and, and honestly, um, you know, my, my, my assumption is always that we also have what to learn, that there is, that, that, that you know, whatever, whatever it's supposed to look like in the end, um, I don't assume that it's, you know, that we will, that redemption will be here when everybody finally figures out that the way I think is the right way to think. We have a lot to learn from each other. And, and, and that dynamic will happen when we begin to trust the process. So, I mean, it's a beautiful note to end on that essentially trusting God finds its expression in trust in each other. So um, before we wrap up, I want to give you an opportunity. If people wanted to reach you and hear more about your initiatives, wanted to be a supporter, how could they do that? So first of all, you can definitely find Hashkacha Pratit and, um, and Aaron Libowitz on Facebook. Okay. And Facebook is a, is a huge channel for us. Um, you can also find us on the web at www.chupot, that's spelled C-H-U-P-P-O-T, .org, .il. Um, that's our website. We don't yet have an English version. It will be going. The English version will be going up in a few months. Um, our Hebrew website just went live last week. Oh, and, um, and uh, definitely, if you know people who are getting married, who um, who should should be exploring this this option, and I believe that they should, then you can refer them to us uh, through the website. And if you're interested in supporting us financially, you can also find don- donation information there. And if that was just too many letters and numbers, you can always reach out to me because I know where to find Rav Aaron. I'm Rav Mike Foyer. You can find me at Rav Mike Foyer at gmail.com. You can also find me on Facebook. And before we wrap up, I just want to thank a few people. I want to thank all the people who give their hard-earned money to make this show happen, to keep it free and widely available. And I want to invite you to join them. Go right now to robmikefoyer.com. Up in the right-hand corner, you will see a Be a Patron button you can click on through to give a little bit of per-podcast support. Put your money where your ears are, people, and help make it happen. I want to thank the Land of Israel Network. That's thelandofisrael.com for creating a platform that allows me to reach such a broad range of so many amazing people. I want to thank the Pardes Institute where we are actually sitting right now. That's P-A-R-D-E-S dot org dot I-L for building an institution that brings together Jews of so many flavors and allows me to touch their hearts and minds. And I want to thank you for listening. I'm Rob Mike Foyer, and this is The Jewish Story. Thank you for downloading this podcast from the Pardes Institute of Jewish Studies. For more original Torah content, visit almad.pardes.org.